Hi there, um, this is Kath in the Geordie Guide to Happiness virtual studio and I'm going to welcome you to episode 25. 25? 25. <laughs> so, first questions, important questions. How are you two both today? Oh, just I've rushed off my feet. In a good way. You know, when you're at work and you feel busy, you kind of have to run around with a sheet of paper in your hand for a while, don't you? <laughs> but you can't do that at home. It doesn't, it doesn't work the same way. Just find a clipboard from somewhere and, yeah, yeah. pretend you're ticking things off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're the same. It's just uh, a bit, uh, yeah, a bit busy, really, just toing and froing and jumping from a work thing to a homeschooling thing, back to a work thing, back to homeschooling, back to the thing you started yeah. off doing first thing in the morning that you never actually got finished. And <laughs> Yeah. It's been utterly, yeah, really, really busy. <laughs> I, I was I was trying to catch up with a friend of mine uh, yesterday and she dropped me an email to say, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm just too busy to, to have anything to do with you. Um, <laughs> because, because they're busy homeschooling their, their grandchildren. Mm. <laughs> and that brought me up short. I thought, wow, I never thought of that grandparents will be involved in the homeschooling process <laughs> there's no mm -hmm. let up for the grandparents I suppose it all depends on what uh, households you know what what households are made up and what bubbles there are yeah, and uh, yeah. it's just so complicated it is yeah. it is the, the I'm I'm really cross today I, I feel I must say oh dear because I planned I planned my day so that I would have a walk in the rain because I love walking mm -hmm. in the rain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Something happened this morning that pushed pushed the timetable off. So I left the house and it had stopped raining. Oh no! See, most most people would be glad about that, Kath. But <laughs> we know you love the rain. <laughs> and then, as soon as I stepped over the the driveway to to go back in the house, it started to rain. Again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's me. I have to say, going back to the homeschooling. Um, can I give a shout out to my daughter's school? She's at Long Benton High and they have really pulled it out of the bag as far as homeschooling goes. She's had a full timetable since we came back mm. from Christmas, live lessons with mm -hmm. a teacher, with her classmates, and they've been brilliant. It's been so good. Just kind of set her up on Google Meets and she's away. They've just done an incredible job and I think all the teachers out there are doing the best they can. Um, but yeah, they, they've been doing a fab yeah. job with with the, her school's learning. So yeah, isn't that isn't that really good to hear? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Let's have some good news. Yeah, That's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just couldn't even contemplate it. Really, it's uh, <laughs> should we see what we've got this this week? Yeah. Um, I've had the privilege to talk to Val McLean of Live Theatre and Northern Stage fame. We could have spent hours talking about her acting career, but I I happen to know that she'd had a few other careers as well. The one I was particularly interested in was her being a roving reporter for the BBC. <laughs> and so we, we started off talking about that, which is hysterically funny. I just, just <laughs> thought it was so funny. And it puts some of our challenges in terms of sound into perspective. <laughs> I'm sure Dom will have some thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, listen out for her talking about doing Vox Pops in Northumberland Street. Amazing. But really, the, the whole interview, I think, 
switches to a different perspective about where she gains her strength and resilience and happiness, which is in the family. And I was I was really privileged to listen to her talk about how family comes before everything else in her life. And that to the point that all she says is, I'm a wife, a mother, a grandmother before anything else. That was amazing. And I hope you enjoy listening to this interview. Good morning, Val, and welcome to the Geordie Guide to Happiness. Uh, we're really delighted to have you here and tell us a few things about, about your attitudes to happiness and how it's impacted in, in your life. Could you just introduce yourself so that the listeners can get a sense of who you are? Well, I'm Val McLean. I'm very happy to be here. I am known as an actress and a teacher and Primarily, I am a mother. That's me. Usually when we do these recordings, we, we pile straight in and ask different things about happiness. But I'd like you to indulge the podcast team here because I know that early on in your career, you worked for the BBC and you were an interviewer yourself. That's right. For the benefit of the listeners, again, we're, we're using a, a highly complex technical um system so that you and I aren't actually in the same building while this recording's happening. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences of recording? Well, um, after I left teaching in 1970, I got a job at Radio Newcastle and I was a reporter and a presenter and all sorts of things as he did then. And they used to send me out into the street uh, to interview people. It's what is called nowadays as a vox pop. We did it in the 70s. And um, I had to accost people in the street and ask them daft questions. But I was carrying a very heavy ewer, which which was a tape recorder um, with a, a microphone attached, of course. So it was it was really heavy on my shoulder, but it was like a shoulder bag. And I wandered up and down the street, primarily up um, Northumberland Street, talking to shoppers and asking them daft questions like, what do you wear in bed? Or um, what sort of food do you hate most? And what sort of food do you love most? And then I would rush back to the station to <laughs> and I would have to edit it, take the tape out of the machine and cut it and splice it and edit it. Uh, ready for the lunchtime show or the following morning show. So I did a lot of travelling around the area, carrying a ewer. It's a wonder I still have my right arm. I hadn't realised that you actually did the sound, the editing as well. Oh, yes. And I got uh, to present uh, my own show, which um, was, unfortunately for me, I didn't like the name of it. It was called Val. <laughs> I thought, what a, a ridiculous name to call a show. But yes, I did that for three years. Did you enjoy it? I did. I loved it. I loved being at Radio Newcastle. And I loved meeting so many different people. And I mean, I met the most amazing people. I met a guy who saved pieces of barbed wire. <laughs> and he 
was in a submarine, an American submarine on the time. And I was sent down to interview him. And I didn't believe the story at first. I thought, this is a con. They're sending me for a joke. Uh, but I got onto the submarine and I met this man, this young lad. He was about six foot three and he was in a submarine. And um, it was true. He collected pieces of barbed wire. <laughs> and he showed me little you know, packs of them and he was showing me this was from Vietnam and this was from some other country and this, I, I didn't dare laugh. I had to keep my face straight and oh yes, yes and I asked him quite a lot about it. Took it back to the station and when everybody heard it they howled with laughter uh, and we got it sent down to London. They put it on Radio 4 I think. <laughs> Nobody oh. could believe it. <laughs> oh fantastic. Did, did what? Did you get a good response when you wandered up to people? Yes, I did. Everybody was very friendly. I can't remember being, I mean, one or two people said, no, we're too busy. But the majority of people, yes, were quite happy to stop and talk to me. That puts what we do completely in a different perspective because we're usually warm, <laughs> warm and cosy when we do. <laughs> yes. Moving on a little bit, from my knowledge of you, you've had so many memorable experiences in, in your lifetime. Are there any in particular that you could say represented you being happy, just totally happy? Yes, I was um, very happy when I was a child with my great aunts. And uh, I didn't have a gra any grandparents who were alive because my mother's mother died when my mother was four and her father died when she was 11. So the grand, the great aunts were really like grandparents to me. One of them was married to an absolutely fabulous man, Uncle George, who was an ex-miner. He was from Bedlington and he had a very strong Bedlington accent. And I couldn't understand a word he said, but he was absolutely wonderful. So, yes, my, my great aunts, they used to take me to the whist drives when I was very small. And I used to get up on a table and sing to, the, uh, to everybody really? at the whist drive. Uh, yes, during the intervals when they were having tea, I used to get up and sing to them. I must have been about four. <laughs> but I was always uh, singing and, you know, theatre bound, I think. I also was very happy when I was reading because we lived in two rooms. That was, that was my father and mother, me and my sister, Sheila. We lived in two rooms up above Miss Campbell's bookshop and newsagents on Church Street. And Miss Campbell used to let me go into her shop when it was closed and read oh, the books. Wow. As long as I didn't make a mess of them, I could read all the annuals at Christmas. So I was a I was a great reader. I still am. I adore books. I, I spent such a lot of time going back and forward to hospital because I was born with um, a heart defect. And, which I didn't actually know about until I was 18. But I was going back and forward to hospital for all sorts of things, because I was a pretty sickly child, I think. And um, every time we'd been to hospital and they'd been poking me about, my mother would take me to Phoenix to, on Northumberland Street and we would get a book. So that's how I ended up with masses of books. <laughs> and I actually set up my own little library for the kids in the area on Church Street. They used to come and borrow my books. And I think, I, I, according to somebody I met recently, I used to charge them a halfpenny a time. 
It sounds as though family life was really important. It was really, yes. Um, you know, you don't think about your family life un- until you get older and you think, goodness me, what did I do then? We moved house. We were in these two rooms but, and that was it. The, that was the whole house up, up above Miss Campbell's shop. My mother used to pester the, the council for a, a house and eventually after, when I was about eight, we got a house up in on Fairways Estate in Benton. Well, it wasn't a house, actually. It was a flat. And we were absolutely thrilled. I went with my mother to see it and, oh, it was wonderful. It had a kitchen. It had a bathroom. It was utter joy. Yes, that was a great time. I mean, we I think my mother and I danced around the empty place when we looked at it and said, this is wonderful. We couldn't believe it. I've met a few people who've can remember the time when they moved in, into a house uh, uh, with, with with a bathroom and a kitchen. The the joy in their voices when they talk about it, yes. And occasionally there was central heating as well. Well, we moved after that um, when my brother was born, Jimmy, um, because we were only in a two-bedroom flat and we needed to have three bedrooms, uh, two yeah, three bedrooms, with the with having a, a boy. And my mother exchanged for a house further down on the estate, on Fairways Estate. Unfortunately, that house was freezing cold. We could never get it warmed up. I've never known such a, oh, such a cold house. I used to sit shivering, you know, with a one-bar one electric fire in the bedroom and do, trying to do my homework. It was horrendous. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. So, so tell me a little bit about the aunties. Oh, my auntie Sarah, my, well, she was my great aunt. She was the most wonderful cook. She was the loveliest, kindest person you could ever meet. Gentle, shy, married to this wonderful man who adored her. I mean, they'd been... They'd been um, engaged, I think, for 13 years or something because she wouldn't, yeah, because she wouldn't marry him until her adopted family, the, the my mother and her brothers, until they were grown up. And she worked night and day. She, she uh, worked for the school in the kitchens and the nearest school and, and she uh, knitted and she did most beautiful embroidery and all sorts of things. Washing she did for people in order to make enough to keep the family going. She was incredible. Aunt Belle was the younger sister, great Aunt Belle, and she was a a wonderful dressmaker. She made my clothes throughout my whole life until I think I left well, when I went to university, I was lucky enough to go to university, having won a scholarship. Um, and Aunt Belle made all my clothes. I mean, I don't think I had, I even had a coat uh, from anywhere else until I was about 17. Oh, she, she was incredible. I used to, I, when I went to Leeds University, which was absolutely wonderful. That's a, a brilliant time in my life because it opened my eyes to the whole of the, of society and I managed to go abroad with the drama society. It was just a splendid time. Um, and I went to a number of balls, you know, the, in those days. The university used to have 
fantastic balls. And of course, my aunt would make an outfit for me. She would make the dresses. And all I did was I would send her a I would send her a drawing and say, "Look, I would like this in red velvet or whatever. It'll look like this." And she made it and sent it. <laughs> so everybody at university thought I was incredibly well off because I had such lovely clothes. <laughs> Little did they know I had a penny. <laughs> I'm a private dressmaker. So, so just thinking about all of that experience yes. that you'd sort of soaked up as a child and, and a young adult going forward what were you looking in in your personal life for in terms of contentment and happiness well luckily for me i met my future husband when i was 16 child bride <laughs> Well, I went, I, I thought I was on the shelf because I was 16 and I didn't have a boyfriend. Of course, yeah. And, and my best friend, Rosemary, said to me, let's go and sit and watch my boyfriend playing football because he's in a, he's obviously, if he's in a, playing football, he's in a team and there's 11 players. There must be somebody you like there. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I went with her to see this um, football match. And I saw this lad running up and down the, the football pitch, of course. And I thought, oh, he looks lovely. He had blonde hair and he had muscly legs. He was, he was, he was just gorgeous. <laughs> I love it. And I said to her, I, love it. I, I would love to meet him. She said, I'll manoeuvre it. She did. <laughs> she manoeuvred it. She got her boyfriend to bring the other guy over. <laughs> And he he spoke to me, and we had a, we had a bit of a chat, and it turned out his name was Martin McLean, and that was the beginning of our life together. Basically, um, we started to go out as boyfriend and girlfriend after knowing each other for a, a little while, and uh, he supported me the whole of my life. I mean, he has been my rock. I'm still with him. We've been married for over 50 years, and he is my rock. I was uh, married when I was 22, which was pretty young. I was straight out of university. Um, I had by that time got a degree and a teaching certificate. And um, unfortunately, two years later, my sister died. And I had an absolutely horrendous time for for many years after that trying to recover from that changed my life but he was there he was there throughout he helped enormously um and we had hoped to have children but nothing happened so i thought well never mind um i went to i left teaching um, after a dispute with the headmaster after about five years and i worked for radio newcastle and uh, from 1970 to 73. And then in 72, I was introduced to a guy called Jeff Gillam at a party. And he was setting up a theatre company. And he said to me, um, I, need a, I need a helper. I need some financial assistance to set this up. Um, would you be interested? So I thought, well, I've always wanted to be a full-time actor, I suppose. And, um, okay, yeah, I'll help out. So 
I helped him out financially. And um, it's a good job I did do this, actually, because um, they got rid of me from the, <laughs> from the, the radio station. <laughs> um, it was the second time in my life I had a big row with whoever was the male boss. And I had a big row with the guy at the we'll time. Make, we'll make come and back. I said, we'll make come s- back to relationships later on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I just said, "Look, I'm not staying here any longer. Um, I'm leaving today because I'd gone freelance. I could leave any time, so I just walked out. And uh, I contacted Jeff as, again and said, "Look, I'm here. <laughs> um, how about I just join you full time?" And he said, "Yes, yeah, sure, yes." So the beginning of 73 uh, was the beginning of live theatre. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah, There were only four of us. Jeff was the um, instigator, the the brains behind it. Um, And we had two other girls. That was uh, Madeleine Newton and Lorraine Lingard. And one fella called Ned Smith, who unfortunately didn't last long in fact the men didn't last long because we were trying to live off the earnings which was Mm. ridiculous (laughs) because the idea was to provide theater for the working class and all the members of the company the actors had to be from the working class that when we were we had working class backgrounds and uh obviously in those days, people didn't uh, really know what we were up to. We used to go into pubs and do shows and just have like a, a tin at the door for them to put a few quid in. We ended up with about tuppence <laughs> each, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we used my car. My car was the company car uh, because I'd got one when I was working at Radio Newcastle. Um, my husband came with us if we needed any help. And just generally, we carried on like that for some and, time. And that was a, a golden time in your life, wasn't it? But something else golden happened as well, didn't it? Because, well, yes, out of the blue, right? I joined this, this company in 73. and Out of the blue, I discovered I was pregnant in late <laughs> 73. I couldn't believe it. I'd been married for like nine years Along came ne- the following year. Along came next August, my first child, Sarah. Absolutely wonderful, adored her. That created some challenges and some opportunities, didn't it? <laughs> As an actor. Well, when I was pregnant with her, we did a show in in Newcastle, up in the West End. I was very pregnant <laughs> at the time, and it was called Buster Kenton the show because it was set in Kenton and we uh, we had a, a huge marquee and we built a stage inside and everything um and so she became baby buster before she was even born <laughs> it's not surprising that she's also very theatrical <laughs> i remember you telling me once about going into the university theater oh, yes with the baby <laughs> that, could you, that, could you... That. that was with my second child. Um, that was with Catherine. We um, occupied the university, what was then the university theatre, to prevent it from closing. Jeff Gillam had left live theatre 
1975, but he came back up to the northeast and he was working locally. Uh, he he decided because he was very very left wing that he would organise an equity sit-in to occupy the university theatre. So it happened. They were the council were going to close the theatre, so we moved in. An extra person came. There was, because I had a three-month-old, four-month-old baby. <laughs> and um, I had a massive pram, as you did in those days. So I used to um, take the pram in the mornings to the theatre. And there was a, a policeman on the door because it was all locked up. And he would open the door <laughs> and let me in. And I would take my baby into the occupation of the theatre. <laughs> So she must be the youngest person ever to occupy a theatre. She was only four months. <laughs> and has she followed in the creative? Yes, uh... she is also um, a drama. Uh, she's got a degree in drama and um, she's also theatrical. They both followed in my footsteps. That's amazing. But on a, on a more serious note... There were challenges at that oh, time, yes. weren't there, about having a, a young family and a career? Well, because I, all the people I worked with um, at the time when I had the children, they were childless. They did not understand the difficulties and they didn't make any concessions because I, I had children. It was really difficult Especially, uh, there was one time, because I was in live theatre from 73 to about 80, 79 to 80. I was there almost full time, apart from taking a few months off to have children. They just, they couldn't understand why, I, you know, I had to have concessions. I mean, the boys particularly were very macho. You know, um, and they complained one time just after I'd had my, I think it was after I'd had my second child. I'm not sure if it was the first or the second. But anyway, they complained not long after that I wasn't carrying enough scenery. Yes, because we used to turn up outside a club or a pub and have to carry things in, you see. And I couldn't carry anything heavy. I mean, I'd I had a baby. I'd just had a baby a few months before. And they made a complaint, you know, we had these big meetings where they complained about things and it was like, well, you don't pull your weight. I said, what are you talking about? They said, you don't pull your weight. I said, of course I do. I write things. I act in them. I organize, you know, uh, pr programs. I'm planning. What do you mean I don't pull my weight? Well, you don't carry enough. Oh, dear me. It impacted on your life in other ways, though, wasn't it? And you, you made you made some choices about what came first, the acting or the family, didn't you? Well, the the family had to come first, because I had I had a pretty awful experience when my mother was in hospital. I think this was uh, must have been about seventy nine. I think my mother had cancer. She was rushed into hospital to have an operation. And my mother had looked after my children while I was out working. Oh, of course. And we did a, we were doing a school play. And I contacted the then director and said, uh, look, I can't come in because my mother's in hospital. Oh, you've got to come in. I said, I can't. Yes, you, yes, you can. I said, well, I've got two children and nobody to look after them. 
My eldest one by that time was at school. You're, you will ruin this company. And uh, oh, he put so much pressure on me. I, I went, I had to take my little girl to my great aunt's one day a week at, at, at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, another day I took her across to Dunstan to my sister-in-law. Um, and between them, I was running back and forward with the, with the baby. Then I was doing a day's work. Then I was running back and forward to collect her. And I had to go to the hospital to see my mother. And now when I think about it, I just can't believe that I was stupid enough to do that. I was forced into it, basically. But... Um, I wish I'd no I wish I hadn't done it because it was it was very hard on my on my little girl. I mean she she cried a lot and you know suffered a lot because I was just dropping her at places and and rushing off. So that that meant that the family always came before the opportunities in your career because you had a very successful career in other in London and other parts of the country, didn't you? I did because uh in 1981, I was cast um, in a play called United Kingdom on television. It was a film, actually, uh, which went on to television, and it was about two and a half hours long. And I got the lead, the leading part in it. Um, Roland Joffey, the director, interviewed me, auditioned me about five times, but eventually I got it. And it changed my career because although it was only shown once, it had a huge impact on people, particularly socialists, because it was a very left-wing um, film about a, a rent strike up in the northeast. And that actually changed my career. The next thing was Northern Stage invited me to do some plays and while I was doing one of them I was auditioned I went to an audition for a musical in London and uh, it was Andy Cap the musical and I got the part uh, of um, Florrie's best friend and to cut a long story short we it was at the Manchester Royal Exchange when we were three or four weeks into rehearsal the woman playing Florrie dropped out so they asked me to take over her role. So at the last minute, I had to swap roles, learn, oh relearn all the thing again and get it on within about a week. But the thing it was that it was hugely popular. It was a massive success. Um, they took So after six weeks in Manchester, they took it... We had a three-month break, and then they took it to London. So I was in the West End for about four months, and I was nominated for an award, Best Actress in a Musical. So the beginning of the 80s, 80, well, 81 to 86, I was doing extremely well uh, with my career, but I was travelling up and down the country all the time because there was so little work up here in fact there was next to nothing um i've had I, during my career i've had to do an immense amount of traveling most of it um to 
the north so that I didn't have too far to travel when I came back home at weekends because I always came back home at weekends if I could because I wanted to see my children and that was hard I, that was really hard I mean when I was in London for four months every single Sunday I was on the train for about four hours because you know what Sundays trains are like uh, from London to Newcastle then I had a day and very little time with my family and then I had to be back on the Monday afternoon so I had another four-hour train journey back on the Monday afternoon to do the show on the Monday night I did that for four months do you think that lifestyle's changed at all well you see the majority of actors unfortunately have to leave the northeast oh, to per- work permanently right I yes think. yeah um i would say you know all the well-known actors from the northeast have to leave because there isn't any work up here or mm-hmm. or what little there is you can do in a few months mm-hmm. and then what are you going to do the rest of the time no so yes that there are still people who uh women who do have problems with obviously it's the kind of job where you have to give it 24 hours of the day you rehearse all day uh, and perform at nights or whatever it's diff- it's very difficult how do you think lockdowns impacted on on theatre life, I, I mean, obvious, obviously, the the lack of audiences, the lack of productions, but from the actor's perspective, yeah, it's absolutely ruined it. I mean, the theatres yeah. are ninety percent of theatres are closed, and the ones that are open are only showing like one one man shows or whatever. It's had a huge impact on the business. I know for a lot of my friends, it's it's caused them. A lot of trouble. I've come across it from the experience of the audience not being able to get to theatre, but but for the actors, yeah, it's it's their entire profession just swiped away from them, isn't it? Yeah, it has wrecked the the business. But um, my whole life changed in 1986 when I had an accident on stage. Really? Yeah, and I. <gasps> damaged the base of my spine uh, I was pushed over by a fellow actor I mean I don't know what he was doing he was improvising or something um, ended up in hospital in London and uh, you know I couldn't walk so I thought I was going to be um, lame for life I didn't think I'd be able to walk ever again um, I was pretty badly hurt well, I was damaged, you know, the base of my spine was yeah. severely damaged. I mean, it still is. There's nothing nothing we can do about it. Um, I spent quite a long time going back and forward to hospital. I was in hospital up here, actually, uh, for, at Hexham for a while, in the spinal unit. Um, and it that wrecked my career because I couldn't actually do anything for about two years, three years, uh, and when you're out of sight, you're out of mind in this business. It's quite quite cut, as, as cutthroat as that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I had to sue the National Theatre. 
Oops. <laughs> because uh, equity took up my case because um, obviously it was quite serious mm. and I had to sue the National Theatre. And I think once you've done that, people in the business don't want to have anything to do with oh, you. I had sure. great difficulty getting back. Just just thinking about that ex- the experience of the accident and the recovery um in in the in relationship to what we're talking about here which is, is happiness and experiences of it you had your entire career so wiped out basically I did after yeah. that didn't you so did did you how did you recover from that or well um, I did get some work um a couple of years later um and then I I had um, a year <laughs> running a club. I don't think you know this, do you? I, I ran a private club in um, in Newcastle for a year. Um, I got I got uh, the money that I got for the accident. I ploughed the whole lot into running this club, um, and I loved it. It was a private members' club. It was in Nun Street, and I had. A wonderful time we had parties every other night and and it was it was great but i lost all my money on it oh, <laughs> i spent every penny <laughs> on it and um i had problems with the landlord and uh i turned it turned out he was he was siphoning off the beer and the lager and everything mm. from us no wonder i wasn't making any profits <laughs> so i left that after a year, but I don't regret it because it was a year-long party, Excellent. and it uh, brought me back to life really. And then I got a wonderful chance when Alan Lydiard took over Northern Stage, and he rang me up, talked to me, and hired me, which was fabulous. It meant I was working at home for the next three years. It was oh, wonderful, was wonderful. wonderful. He gave me wonderful opportunities. I think I did about seven, eight plays with him and oh. enjoyed every minute of it. It was great. In your lifetime and career, you've had ups and downs, happy periods and lots of happy periods. Where do you stand on the happiness ratio now? Are you content where you are at the moment? I am really, yes, because I've got two absolutely wonderful granddaughters who I see all the time. Uh, well, at least, you know, when you can during this epidemic. But they're abs- I adore them. I've got a, a two granddaughters, one aged 10 and one aged 6. They're just wonderful. They make life worth living. It's, it's almost as if you've, you've had a complete circle of family experiences. Because when you're talking about your grandchildren, I, I can think back to you talking about sitting, reading the book and yes. having having your mum yes. mum and dad around. And not everyone has had that in their life, really, have they? No, I think in spite of the fact that I also survived an incredibly difficult heart operation when I was aged 18. And so in spite of the fact of having been through all of this, these traumas, terrible trauma when my sister died. I mean, I, was, I still suffer from that now. But um, yeah, I've had some wonderful times. I love living in the Northeast, although this is a big secret. I wasn't born here. 
Oh dear! Now she tells us. <laughs> my mother. Well, my mother was uh, was evacuated. It was near the the end of the Second World War when I was born. She was sent to Gillsland to the maternity hospital. That's where I was born. I cannot claim to have been born on the banks of the Tyne. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful! Wonderful, I love it. Tell me about the bus trip home from the hospital. Oh in yes, yes. I'm talking about being happy, yes. Well, this operation was absolutely massive in those days. I mean, nowadays it's it's a lot uh, less. Uh, but um, I was told that the it was a 60-40 chance to get through it alive. And I got through it alive. Uh, I was in a lot of pain because I was cut from all the way down... The, my back all the way round to the front. I've got. I had, I had something like fifty six stitches. They had to open me up to get to my heart. And um, while I was in there, a sixteen year old girl came in to have a similar operation, and she died. So I was very aware that how lucky I was to be alive. And after getting out of there, I think it was I was in for about fortnight to three weeks but on the way back home I was in the bus because we didn't have car I was in the bus coming home and I looked out of the window and I saw all these people in the street and I looked at them and I thought why are you not happy you're alive that's utterly amazing utterly amazing and are you coping all right with solitude um, it's hard it's hard um Especially if, uh, my, well, my my youngest granddaughter, Clara, who is, she's only six, she had to isolate because she had been in contact with a, a worker at school who turned out to have COVID. And then, so we couldn't see her. Um, Catherine, that's her mum, had to say it with her. You know, this was hard. And it's also very hard um, that you can't just race up to them and swing them around and hug and kiss them you know you've got to be very careful what you do I find that difficult because my life I think revolves around them these days that seems like a really nice place to draw our conversation to a close Val everyone will enjoy listening to this and get a lot out of it in, in relation to family and happiness and so thank you very much for your time. So that was Val. Can I just say I'm really glad I don't have to edit this podcast with a razor and some sticky tape. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe that. Well, I had no. to believe that because it was true, but... Can you imagine taking it right from a rain sodden Northumberland Street to the BBC studios and getting the sticky tape out? No, I can't. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. But I really, I mean, just the idea that you met somebody who collected different types of barbed wire. <laughs> I knew that you would talk about well. the barbed wire. I <laughs> <laughs> piqued my interest, yeah. And he worked on a submarine as well. Did, yeah, I'd forgotten that, but <laughs> do you think he'd long nights in the submarine, he'd get out his barbed wire collection and just kind of look at it? I hope he wasn't trying to sabotage the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> it just 
it just shows how far we've come in terms of technology, doesn't it? Going back to the, you know, the, the whole sort of production of uh, TV back in the day and where we yeah. are now doing things remotely like we are with the podcast. It's just incredible how quickly technology has moved on over the last few decades, yeah. doesn't it? She yeah. was fascinated by the process. Mm-hmm. She really enjoyed really? the process. Uh, right. seeing it this podcast in action yeah mm-hmm. but the she she was telling me about the the you were recording machine that she carried which mm-hmm. sounded like the size of a fridge <laughs> uh, with the, then the microphone so mm-hmm. talk about the skills that you needed to to pull all of that off incredible yeah i went online to try and find uh, any old episodes of that show val to see if there was any recordings or anything of it but i couldn't find anything but i would have loved to hear some of those old shows, Vox Pops and Northumberland Street from the 1970s. My goodness. Thankfully, uh, my uh, footage of being on Blue Peter is also not online. So uh, <gasps> yeah, I'm, I'm glad about that. What, what were you doing on Blue Peter, Alex? <laughs> my, my claim to fame, my 15 minutes of fame. I was on there with my pet rats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> I used to have pet rats and it was one of the presenters first day on Blue Peter. So the production team thought it'd be hilarious to film the studio, uh, fill the studio full of uh, rats. So that's what they did. (laughs) (laughs) I've got it on VHS tape. I think it's in the loft. Um, Oh my goodness. We need to see that. I've never watched it. (laughs) I've got a badge though. (laughs) What do I need? What I'm going to have to get in touch with your partner and, uh, bribe him to get that out of the loft don't you dare and put and put it on youtube <laughs> <laughs> i have searched youtube and they have started to put older uh, episodes up but thankfully not from uh, from that time that i was on <laughs> i think what i could relate to um was what she was talking about being a working mother um particularly a working mother in the cultural sector which is challenging at the best of times um but then throw in a, a global pandemic and um, it creates, um, yeah, a very challenging time for, for all of us, I think, working in the cultural sector and just, yeah, juggling that work, work-life work balance, juggling home life, working life, not wanting to say no to people when work comes up and um, having to work strange hours and all sorts. So I could really relate to that. All the train journeys and the timing everything to get back for the mm. children yeah yeah you know it was just amazing yeah um a couple of other things i really liked about it was when she talked about um i don't know if it was her grandmother or one of her aunties who made all her own who made all her clothes yeah so when she went to any events when she was at university and uh, she she obviously had a very very up-to-date wardrobe and I thought you'd jammy thing. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. And and again that sense of a lovely, happy, happy relationship with all of her uh, aunties and yeah. uh, the reading and the books and going to Phoenix to, to buy a book when she'd been in hospital and uh, just absolutely stunning family life. Yeah. Really nice. Yeah. And, yeah. and thinking that they were never going to have children. <laughs> and all of a sudden <laughs> When they thought they were never going to have to. When you least then. expected it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could really picture her just sitting as a as a kid sitting in the in an empty bookshop as well, reading the annuals. I bet that was magical, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it puts a lovely bit of background into 
an actor's life, really, mm-hmm. because she she didn't focus on the productions and the backstage and that sort of thing. But she really, really did want to talk about family. Yeah. And that was where yeah. her heart is. So it's a lovely place to go. Yeah. Yeah, that really shone through. Although I would still love to see Buster Kenton as well. <laughs> I bet that was great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and she she told me the story before about the pram and the sitting. <laughs> <laughs> but it was lovely to hear it again. The idea of, of the uh, was it security guard holding the door open for us so she could take the baby into the sitting. <laughs> Oh, anyway, I, I could go on about that one for ages. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great interview. Thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure to do it. So if you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then get in touch with us and let us know. We'd love to hear your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email at hello at the happiness.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Geordie Guide or Facebook, The Geordie Guide to Happiness. As always, I want to give a shout out to our funders. This project wouldn't be possible without support from the Newcastle Cultural Investment Fund at the Community Foundation. So thank you so much for your support. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Geordie Guide to Happiness so far. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you next week for another episode.